structures tell stories. Structures tell stories. And the structure of our worship elements in a service of worship will tell the story of what it is we believe, who it is we've come to worship, and what we think the gospel is. And uh, what I found when I did the book with my friend Mark Ernji, Reformation Worship, Liturgies from the Past for the Present, what I found was there was a very deliberate ordering of the elements so that it told the story of the gospel. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. I assume that many who are listening may not be familiar with the importance, the significance, and the longevity of liturgy in the church. Now, why do I say that? Well, in my experience in different evangelical churches, liturgy is a strange word, a foreign word, and uh, oftentimes it's looked at with perhaps some suspicion. Uh, Maybe it's associated with something dry and cold, uh, something that's uh, merely a, a, a habit that has no heart in it. But did you know that actually liturgy formed an important, a crucial part of daily worship in the church for hundreds, dare I say, thousands of years. In fact, liturgy was so important that even during the Reformation period, as they considered how to reform worship in the church, they not only relied at different points on liturgy from the medieval period, but even when they did reform certain aspects of it, they made sure that liturgy liturgy remained central. Even the rhythm of life in the church service itself, everything from the call to worship, to an adoration of praise, to a strong emphasis on the law and our sin and the need for confession and even the assurance of pardon, ultimately to scripture readings and the, the recitation of creeds and confessions, followed by prayers of intercession and benediction. Well, there's so much more we could add to that list, but as you can tell, liturgy was quite crucial, uh, not only for the life of the church, but for the doctrinal beliefs. This was a crucial way for doctrinal beliefs to seep into the minds, but ultimately the hearts of the people. So whether they are reciting these things or singing these things, good, sound doctrine is beginning to take form within them. It's hard to think of someone better to come on the Credo podcast to talk about liturgy and its history, as well as how to actually write a liturgy than Jonathan Gibson. He has a PhD from Cambridge University and is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. You may be familiar with with him from his many books, uh, his large edited work, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, is a look at definite atonement. Uh, both from a historical, biblical, as well as a theological and pastoral perspective. He's also uh, been part of a large project on 
Reformation worship, but I can't fail to mention his most recent book, Be Thou My Vision, A Liturgy for Daily Worship, published with Crossway. Jonathan, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Matthew. It's good to talk to you. Now, something I uh, didn't mention uh, during your introduction, and and uh, I should mention this, is before you went to Westminster to teach Old Testament, you were actually a minister, an associate minister at Cambridge Presbyterian Church in England. So uh, it might seem at first glance, what is a, an Old Testament professor doing, write, writing and forming a liturgy? But... Can you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, your experience as a minister uh, back in England and how that has influenced you to write a a liturgy? Yeah, so when I was a Presbyterian minister back in Cambridge, uh, one of the things I did uh, was lead worship each week as well as preach. And I find trying to put together the the liturgy, in particular the content of the liturgy, um, which I really enjoyed doing. I also find it one of the hardest things, and in particular finding how to pray and what to pray each week, and not to sound repetitious, not to use cliches, uh, be fresh and um, helpful to the congregation, but also uh, uh, thinking what can I use from the past that might be helpful. And so during a, a writing leave, my denomination, the International Presbyterian Church, had asked me to put together a bunch of liturgical resources for ministers that might be helpful in services of worship and also on different occasions. And as I uh, did some research, I discovered these great prayers of Butzer, Knox, Calvin, um, Swingley, Luther, etc. And I realized that the prayers that I had found in different books were actually part of liturgies that these reformers had written. And so that put me on a bit of a, a rabbit trail uh, where I headed off looking for these actual liturgies. I find them. Some of them had been translated into English, others hadn't. And I thought it would be really good if all of these were available in a single volume for ministers to be able to read as a whole church service, but also uh, find these prayers and either use them again as set prayers or just adapt them uh, by their own for their own studied prayers. They led the congregation in worship, so that's that was my um, entrance into the world of liturgy. Uh, liturgy's become a sort of a fad, I think, in recent years. It's certainly there's a renaissance in the reformed world of interest in liturgy. Uh, mine sort of just came through my own personal experience of being a minister and looking for good liturgical resources to use on the Lord's Day. So that, that was how I ended up getting into it. In my experience, so many times I you know visit uh, an evangelical church. Um, it I, I can't help at times to wonder whether they've ever thought through liturgy, both personally in terms of their own daily worship but also as, as a church or even as a pastor, uh, sometimes the liturgy that is there uh, is not thought through or it's uh, put together in such a way that it almost sounds anti-liturgical, if that makes sense. And, uh, you know, worst case scenario, um, the, the service actually uh, gives off a feeling um, that is more individualistic, than collective, more entertainment-driven, than prayerful and contemplative. Um, 
Can you speak to this for a, mo- a moment? Because uh, oftentimes those who are in ministry, they're either unaware of what liturgy is all about. So maybe help them for a minute there. But even those who are aware, or maybe perhaps they look at liturgy as something old, something uh, churches did once upon a time, but something completely irrelevant to life in the church today. So the way I think about it or the way I explain it is um, we tend to think that liturgies come down to us from the word and the practice has come down to us from the Roman Catholics and the Anglicans. They're they're the churches that are in the liturgy. Uh, We reformed evangelical, free evangelical folk. We're not into liturgy. Um, We're into the Bible and sermons and evangelistic preaching. Uh, But the word liturgy is a biblical word. It comes from the Greek liturgia. And um, it can mean broadly the whole service of life uh, in service to God, or it can mean more narrowly service at the tabernacle or temple used in Hebrews chapter 9. And it's become known uh, or used for the order of elements in a worship service. Now, when you think about that, the fact is that we all have a liturgy. The Anglicans have a liturgy, but also the free evangelicals have a liturgy. Uh, It's not whether you're going to have a liturgy, it's just which liturgy you're going to have. Now, the Anglicans and other traditions have been more thoughtful about writing it down and putting it in their books of worship, like the Book of Common Prayer, Uh, whereas other uh, non-denominational or evangelical churches uh, sort of have an unspoken or unwritten liturgy. But generally, you can even tell what the liturgy is going to be like in some Uh, free evangelical churches just because it's, you know, they follow the same pattern of elements every week, the same order. So that's the first thing. It's not whether you're going to have a liturgy, it's just which liturgy you're going to have. And then that brings us to the question of the order of the elements. I think you're right. I think a lot of church folk and even pastors in some denominations and even the non-denominational movement have not really thought through the order of the elements. But again, we all have an order. And the question is, what is that order? And is it helpful in worshiping God and conveying the gospel? Uh, a phrase that Brian Chapel uses in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, has been helpful to me. He says, structures tell stories. Mm. Structures tell stories. And the structure of our worship elements in a service of worship will tell the story of what it is we believe, who it is we've come to worship, and what we think the gospel is. And uh, what I found when I did the book with my friend Mark Ernge, Reformation Worship, Liturgies from the Past for the Present, what I found was there was a very deliberate ordering of the elements so that it told the story of the gospel. Uh, I think the Reformed liturgies, very, very broadly speaking, could be divided into three parts. There was a call to worship, God-initiated worship. He calls us to worship through his word. Then there is the human response to that word. And then there is a meal fellowship with God. Call, response, meal. And that general pattern gets filled out in different parts of the Bible. In Exodus chapter uh, 20 to 24, you have a, a general pattern of worship, corporate worship, when Israel meet with God at Sinai. But it begins with God calling to to worship. They hear his word in the Ten Commandments. They respond in consecration. And then the elders go up the mountain and have a meal with God. It's 
repeated again in Second Chronicles chapter five to seven with Solomon when he dedicates the temple on Mount Zion. Same sort of pattern: call, response, meal. And uh, I think that's the general pattern of a good liturgy. Uh, then you would obviously add in elements of confession of sin, assurance of pardon. You'd have the reading of the law before the confession of sin, confession of sin, assurance of pardon, and then the word of the gospel uh, heard through the reading and preaching of Scripture. And then again, more response where we offer offerings to God, uh, maybe our tithes, but also uh, prayers and praises, things like that. Um, So that's what I mean by structures tell stories. I think a good liturgy, and again, we we all have a liturgy. It's just which liturgy we're going to have. But a good liturgy, I think, will tell the story of the gospel and the God uh, who is uh, the God of the gospel. Mm. Now, let's take on... Uh, right away, one of the biggest barriers that some some pastors, not all, but some pastors may feel, especially if they've recently entered into a church and they're leading a people, and perhaps this church is one that has not talked a lot about sin, um, and uh, maybe is even uncomfortable when when in divine God's judgment is raised. Um, maybe it's in the pulpit or maybe it's even in song. Uh, on the one hand, uh, that pastor faces um, quite a task at that point. Uh, but I think you would agree with me that if he were to look at the liturgies of the past, he will find some ready resources to start to introduce um, sin and confession of sin in a way that's actually not just natural but needed so that the people eventually end up at at a place of assurance, praise, and ultimately the gospel itself. So let me throw this question at you, Jonathan. In the liturgy... Uh, both the one that you have designed here and Be Thou My Vision, but also in those liturgies of the past. Uh, We think, for example, of the Book of Common Prayer. Why is it so important that very early towards the beginning, there's not just a call to worship, perhaps there's even a, a moment of praise and adoration, but right away there is some type of reading from the law, and uh, that is oftentimes followed by a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. Why is that so crucial at the beginning? Well, I think it puts us in our place as creatures uh, in relation to the Creator. Uh, So you're right. God calls us to His worship through His Word. I think worship services should begin with Scripture. We don't begin with prayer or song. We don't initiate worship. God initiates worship So he speaks to us first, and then we speak to him. And you're right, most Reformation um, liturgies would have had a prayer of adoration, a song of adoration, uh, some kind of uh, comment about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. And then we hear God's law. We hear God set the rule of righteousness before us that reflects his own character. And that's really what the law is. The law is a revelation of God's will. It's a revelation of who God is as the holy God of his people. And so having a reading from the law, which traditionally would have been the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, or the first 
a, a great commandment and second commandment that Jesus taught us to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, or to have the Shema, the uh, yes, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, from ex- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, read. These kinds of readings are uh, a way to show us our uh, our uh, uh, allegiance or our uh, indebtedness to who God is as our creator, uh, that we ought to honor him and follow his ways and reflect his holiness. But in reading the law, and having it read to us as participants in worship, we soon realize that we've not kept it. We've not been able this past week to keep that standard of the Ten Commandments or to love God with heart and soul and mind or strength or to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so it's right and good to respond to the reading of the law with a confession of sin. And so in the Reformation liturgies, they would use phrases like, uh, we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Uh, we have left undone the things we ought to have done, and we have done the things we ought not to have done. Mm. And I think those kinds of phrases are just really helpful summary statements uh, that we are sinners, that God is holy, and that we are in need of his grace. And so naturally after that, confession of sin, it's good to hear the comforting words of the gospel. And so what the Reformation liturgies would often do is assure the reader, uh, the participants in worship that in the gospel, if their faith is in Christ, then in the gospel, they have indeed received forgiveness of sins. Um, and the sins that they're confessing, they can be sure that God will be just and will forgive them like First uh, John chapter 1 verse 8 to 10 assures us. So that's what I've tried to do in this book, Be Thou My Vision. I have a a call to worship from Scripture, an ador- prayer of adoration from church history, and then seven different kinds of reading of the law for each day of the week, and then a prayer of confession from someone in church history, followed by a Old or New Testament text that gives us the assurance of the gospel of forgiveness mm. when we confess our sins. Now, you've not only included scripture at strategic parts, uh, the call to worship, for example, or like you just mentioned, the reading of the law or the assurance of pardon, but you also have included, and I'm so glad you did this, you've also included readings from uh, those of the past, uh, and not just the Reformation, but going back to the church fathers, as well as the uh, medieval, uh, the medieval uh, theologians as well. Uh, for example, uh, one of my favorites is day five, in which you begin with a call to worship from Psalm 117, followed by uh, adoration, a prayer of praise from Anselm, uh, who is uh, those who, who know me from the podcast know that Anselm is uh, one of my favorite theologians. And then you begin, yes, with a return to the law, uh, Matthew chapter 5, to a confession of sin. But the confession of sin, again, then turns to someone from church history. And uh, you do that again and again, uh, rotating back and forth between uh, these readings from Scripture. And then also, uh, not just hearing the words of those from the past, but actually embodying those words, putting them in our own mouths as we confess the same God. Now, 
what what is so significant about this is you you don't just stop there. You actually go further, and you place uh, a creed, a, a confession, or a catechism right in the middle of each liturgy. Uh, for example, right after the people of God are are given assurance of their forgiveness in Christ. Uh, on this day five, you have a reading from the the uh, Athanasian Creed. In other days, you have a reading from the Nicene Creed. Why is it so important that the people of God not only hear the words of Scripture, but then also hear and actually say um, these words from so many of the uh, crucial, uh, indispensable creeds of the Christian faith? So a, a quote that I love is um, Cyprian of Carthage, who said, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. And uh, it sounds very Roman Catholic, that, but actually Calvin quoted it in his institutes. Uh, he's quoting Cyprian of Carthage. You cannot have, uh, no one can have God for their father who does not have the church for their mother. And what I mean, or what, what he means by that, and what I like about that is, um, that as Christians worshiping today in corporate worship or, or individually in our daily devotions, uh, we ought to look like our mother. We ought to look like we belong to our mother. And therefore, we ought to look like the church service belongs in a stream of tradition that is older than the noughties, the older than 2000. <laughs> um, and so what I've tried to do there is, yes, I've got four four kinds of prayer in the daily worship in the Be Thou My Vision. There's a prayer of adoration, confession, illumination, and intercession. And each one of those prayers um, are prayers taken from church history. And you're, you're right, Matthew, I've used prayers not just from the Reformation era, but all the way back to the early church fathers and even medieval period with Anselm and Thomas Akempis uh, and people like that. And I, the reason for that is I want, I want as a worshiper to connect with the church through the ages, you know, for all the saints um, and for the faith once delivered to the saints. I, I want to connect with this long stream of Christian tradition. So that's the reason I included those kinds of prayers. And as you would know yourself with Anselm's prayers and Augustine's and others, you know, they're so heartfelt and they're put in such great language, but they're also very general prayers. It's not like they're so specific that no one else could identify with them. They're a bit like the Psalms. There's a very, uh, there's a generality to them that we can all identify with mm. as we worship God or as we confess our sins or as we ask for illumination or as we make our intercessions. I've tried to keep those prayers very general so that we can all identify with them. And yes, then I add in the creeds. And the reason I put them in there after the assurance of pardon is because I think the creeds summarize who God is and what his gospel is. So God is one God in three persons, three persons in one God. That is crucial to being a Christian. You need to believe that to be a Christian. And also then the, the truth about Jesus, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven conceived of the Virgin Mary, uh, sorry, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, etc., etc. They, they go through the key events in Christ's life. And what the creeds are giving us is the God of the gospel and 
the gospel of God. They're giving us what it is that saves us. So having heard the assurance of pardon from an Old Testament text or a New Testament text, by then saying a creed, what we're doing is we're affirming the gospel we believe gives us our forgiveness of sins, the gospel message that actually justifies us before this holy God to whom we've just confessed our sins. So that's why I've um, put the creeds in there. And uh, I wanted it to be uh, standing in the stream of Christian tradition, but also I wanted a really good, succinct summary of what is the gospel and who is the God of the gospel. And then at the end of the creed, or after the creed, as you can see, I have two versions of the ancient Trinitarian hymn, the Gloria Patri, glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and evermore shall be, world without end. I have two versions of that, which I think is a really nice part of the daily liturgy, and this was also part of church liturgies in the Reformation era, that they would often respond to who God is with a little short Trinitarian praise like a doxology or the Gloria Patri. So that's my reason for putting in the, the creeds there. Mm. You know, one of the, the ways that this has been so fruitful in my own life, uh, both as a pastor, but then also just as a Christian, is, and maybe you've experienced this too, I'm sure many of our listeners have, uh, You, everyone has those points uh, in their life in which they struggle to pray, and they, they struggle to know the words to use uh, to pray. And sometimes that has to do with just the anguish of, of life and, and all it brings. Other times we can experience uh, periods in life in which, well, we don't, we, we don't feel as close to God as, as we want to, or we think we should. And we can struggle at those points, both in prayer in confession of sin, but then also in praise, uh, words of praise to God. And so I think you're exactly right. I, I think that uh, having uh, the ability to link arms with those in the church uh, before us, not, not just during our own day, but those before us, it not only gives us words when, when we are wordless, but it also gives us... Uh, a bit of a confidence, a bit of a motivation, even an inspiration to say, I'm not alone here. Actually, uh, those who have come before me, uh, they too, um, they too look to Christ in this way and they can come alongside me and help me. But I, I think what you said, Jonathan, a minute ago about uh, the creeds in particular, I think uh, we need to hear that because so oftentimes uh, in in evangelical churches today, the creeds are just absent. Um, they, they're they not talked about um, in from the pulpit, and they're certainly uh, not uh, mentioned uh, during the liturgy, let alone recited. This hit me not long ago because I, of course, experienced this in, vari- in a variety of ways in different evangelical churches in my past. But I remember talking to... Um, actually a, a relative of mine. And uh, he said to me, you know, I, I never had the chance to go to seminary and I'm not even aware of all the debates whirling around on social media and, and so on. But um, I, I do recite the creed 
uh, each Sunday at church. And, and he's referring perhaps to the Apostles' Creed, sometimes to the Nicene Creed. And he said to me, uh, what a comfort that's been, not just spiritually, but intellectually to know that I am standing on a solid foundation of of orthodoxy that doesn't just go back to the Reformation, but also to the church fathers as well. Now that said, Jonathan, I I have to ask you um, another question that's not entirely unrelated because uh, as a church or an individual is working through a liturgy like this and they not only are confessing their sin, receiving assurance of pardon, but also reciting the creed, well, they might be surprised that, um, and even like you mentioned, uh, saying the Gloria Patri in which they are praising the Holy Trinity, they might be surprised that there's also an instructional um, moment or element that's involved at that point. Uh, sometimes, not not every day, but sometimes you have uh, a section devoted to catechism. Now, this may really be shocking to some because maybe we can convince them of, okay, a scripture reading or perhaps even um, a prayer or, the, you know, reciting a creed. But catechism, isn't that uh, academic? What, what, is a catech- what is a catechism doing in the middle of a liturgy, would you say? Yeah, so, you know, catechism is a question and answer. It was a, a, a pedagogical method which became prominent uh, in the Reformation, post-Reformation era uh, for educating the church and particularly younger people and families about what it is we need to believe about the Christian faith. Now, for those who like their creeds but who may be a little bit suspicious or ignorant of the catechism, or catechisms, historic ones like Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism or a Luther's a Children's Catechism. Um, the uh, interesting thing about the catechism is that it's really just an exposition of the creed. It's just a question and answer of the what it is we believe in the creed, what it is we believe about the Ten Commandments, and what it is we believe about the Lord's Prayer. And historically, creeds... Lord's Prayer and Ten Commandments were all essential uh, elements in the Christian liturgy of the Christian church. So really what catechism is doing there is just teaching us a bit more about what this, what it is we're affirming in the creed. Um, and so I've included the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's, it is every day in the liturgy. I have a section on catechism. And the idea there is you do one question a day. So, you know, what is my only hope and comfort and what is my only comfort in life and death? Heidelberg Catechism, question one. And then you can read the answer at the back of the book uh, in the appendix. And it's just one question a day. And my idea there is edification uh, and instruction. You know, Paul tells Timothy to exhort and edify and encourage the church. And I think that's what the catechism is doing. It's instructing us, edifying us, exhorting us, encouraging us um, uh, to keep uh, uh, understanding, um, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So that's how I understand uh, the catechisms there. The neat thing about this, this is really quite providential. I was trying to work out, well, okay, which catechism am I going to use and how many questions a day? And then I started doing some maths, and I realized Heidelberg's 129 questions, Westminster Shorter's 107. And if you uh, do one question a day from the Heidelberg 
one question a day from the Westminster Shorter, and then you repeat the Heidelberg, one question a day. It's 365 days exactly. Oh. <laughs> so uh, so it, it, it felt very providential to put those two uh, catechisms in. So you can get through the Heidelberg twice in a year and the Westminster Shorter once in a year. And uh, certainly, again, for me, I can only speak from my own experience. It's been really good for me to, you know, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, so I've signed up to the Westminster Standards. But it's been really good for me to sort of acquaint myself again with these reformed confessions and catechisms of the Reformation era. Uh, And as a minister standing in that tradition, it's been good for me to uh, acquaint myself and become more clear again Mm -hmm. on what it is that I believe and what it is that the gospel is all about. For our listeners, uh, you may be uh, really pleased to find out that at the very end of uh, each of these days, um, there is not just the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism that you can work through, but uh, Jonathan also includes the doxologies uh, that can be sung, as well as a... uh, Bible reading plan uh, that can be followed. But uh, the other thing that's included, which might be a surprise to to some, but perhaps not to others, others I think will be really jumping for joy at this point, is at the the very end, Jonathan, you also include collects from the Book of Common Prayer. Now, for those listeners who are just completely unfamiliar with with these and, or perhaps even the book of common prayer. What, what are these and why do you think, uh, not just the book of common prayer, but these specific prayers, sometimes for, uh, specific holidays like Christmas or Advent or Easter, but also, um, just working through the church calendar. Why are these, why did you consider these so important to include them? Uh, well, I, I went to an Anglican college in Sydney. I studied at Moore Theological College, uh, which is uh, an Anglican college, and uh, we would say colics during our chapel services. So I was I became uh, exposed to these kinds of prayers, and I was always struck by how helpful I find them personally. They were short. They weren't long. Uh, they normally had about three points. These were written by Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer in 1552, and then reused in 1662, which is the the sort of standard Book of Common Prayer today. And um, yeah, I find them so helpful. And he had written them for different occasions and for different seasons of the year. So as you mentioned, Matthew, you know, for Advent, there's also ones for around Easter time, Ascension, Pentecost, etc. And again, I find it helpful to be reading, saying prayers connected to Uh, key events in the life of Christ. And so I think most churches today, even in Presbyterian circles, even in some quite conservative Presbyterian circles, you know, most churches, they observe Advent and Christmas Day, Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day service. Uh, The Anglican tradition will mark Epiphany, the, the appearance of Christ at the temple and his circumcision. Uh, and then we all uh, will, uh, not not all, but most churches will um, observe Good Friday. Some will do Palm Sunday the week before Good Friday, uh, Easter Sunday, and then even Ascension Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. And so um, I think it's really helpful actually to be reading prayers 
tied to those key uh, events in the church calendar. And it's not just the Anglicans. You see, you know, I, I believe the Anglicans are part of the Reformed tradition uh, that's come out of the Reformation, the Cranmer and all of uh, the work that went on in the Church of England, the Reformation. That was all part of the Reformed Church. And uh, so I think we need to be, you know, as someone who's uh, a Presbyterian, I'm uh, first of all Reformed. Uh, Presbyterianism is an, a sub-branch of the Reformed Church. And so I want to include the whole of the good things that have come down to us from the Reformed tradition. So that's why I've included the the prayers from the um, the Book of Common Prayer. You know, I think I, I want to add something there because uh, you have mentioned, Jonathan, your your past experience in the church, both the Anglican Church, but also the Presbyterian Church. And I just, uh, amen, uh, what you just said, because uh, you have such a rich history in which um, this liturgy that we've been talking about uh, goes all the way back. It goes all the way back to, to individuals like Cranmer who uh, labored so hard. And as you mentioned, it's very difficult to produce something that is so effective. But uh, Cranmer labored so hard to produce a liturgy that uh, would lead the people of God to the word of God and, and worship and adoration. But I would also just add, you know, to, to some of our listeners who may be Baptists uh, like myself, uh, this is not, you are not excluded from liturgies like this. This is, uh, you can, you too can pick up, whether it's uh, Gibson's Be Thou My Vision, uh, you t- or, or even the Book of Common Prayer itself, you too can benefit and even uh, utilize some of these these key liturgies and prayers to uh, feed your own people. Because as as you just said, Jonathan, it's not um, so, so many times these prayers, whether they're from church history, from scripture, the scripture itself, uh, are leading us in a way that is is really so essential to anyone who is a Christian at all, from the law to the, the good news, the gospel, to confessing and, and our sin, to receiving assurance, to praising who this God is to begin with. All of this is something that uh, even Baptists, as, as they consider, how can they uh, incorporate liturgy in they, their church? They too need not feel intimidated by this, or even as if liturgy is something they should be suspicious of. Jonathan, as we close here, what would you say to some of our listeners who, uh, you know, they're, they're listening, they're, 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 somewhat uh somewhat convinced but but maybe they need a little bit of a push mm-hmm. uh, I'd say two things uh, one is you know when you change your diet at first it feels quite difficult you're getting off the junk food the high fat the high sugar and you start eating real vegetables and <laughs> um, <laughs> and at first it doesn't taste so good you know you're like oh where's the sugary sweets I need I need my sugar but actually if you sustain yourself in the diet you get to the point where actually you start to get your taste your real taste buds back for yeah. good food rich food um and uh, and then when you go back to a bit of junk food, you're like, oh, no, I could never go back to that. I actually like this new diet that I'm on. And, and that's what I would say to people. When you start using a liturgy like this, at first, 
it will feel strange to your taste buds, spiritual taste buds, if this is not what you were brought up with. And I wasn't brought up. I was brought up in a, you know, Baptistic evangelical church, which I'm very thankful for. There was a lovely piety to the people in the church. And I wasn't used to a sort of a set formal liturgy, but I've actually grown to love it. And now I find it indispensable, really, to my own discipline of of worshiping God and even uh, on the Lord's Day as well. So that would be the first thing is, you know, give it a go. It's not for everyone, but give it a go. Try 31 days through Be Thou My Vision or uh, some other kind of, of liturgy like the Valley of Vision where you just have some lovely prayers that the Puritan uh, can help you with. And Grab some kind of liturgical book, Book of Common Prayer, and give it a go for a month. Just see what it does to your spiritual palate. Uh, the second thing is, I'm going to use a quote here by Winston Churchill, the great British Prime Minister in the Second World War. Churchill after the Second World War, was they were debating whether t- the Westminster Parliament House had become damaged in the war and they were going to have to, they were renovating it and refurbishing it. And they were talking about whether they would restructure the debate chamber to make it more modern. And Churchill pushed back and said, no, we, we restore it to exactly the way it was before because we need a government and we need an opposition to keep them honest. Mm. And so the the government chamber you see today on the TV in the British Parliament, that, that was Winston Churchill said, we don't change a thing. We put it back to the way it was. And then he had this free, he had this line, this maxim. He said, first we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. And I think that's the same with the liturgy. I, I think first we shape our liturgy and then our liturgy begins to shape us. And I think at first it doesn't feel like a comfortable shaping, but actually it's the best kind of shaping that we need for our uh, personal devotions, but also our church worship services. So that would be the second thing I would say, um, you know, shape your liturgy, like use, use the Book of Common Prayer, use this Be Thou My Vision or some kind of fixed liturgy and just see after a month how it shapes your life. And I think to go back to the diet analogy, once you get on this diet, you don't really want to get on the, you, you don't really want to go back to your other diet. It, mm. It's too anemic. It, it doesn't really nourish you as well as something like this does. We've been talking to Jonathan Gibson. Uh, He has not only written books like From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, but one of his most recent is a liturgy, a 31-day liturgical guide that helps, yes, both individuals and certainly families, but also churches as they think through what it means to worship. It's called Be Thou My Vision. If you, uh, as one of our listeners, are feeling malnourished, or perhaps you have had a, a diet, as Jonathan said, a diet that's more junk food than nutritious, let me just encourage you, and I speak here from personal experience, let me just encourage you to to actually take time to think about what is my liturgy? What kind of liturgy, uh, what kind of building, as Jonathan just said, am I? I living in? uh, And and how then is it meant to shape me? I would encourage you uh, on a daily basis to work through a liturgy, even if it's just very, very basic uh, in terms of prayer and scripture reading, uh, confession and uh, seeking forgiveness, but also to consider could 
could this liturgical life, lifestyle even uh, inform my church in which we're not just saying this as individuals, but collectively, corporately, as we consider how everything from scripture to the creeds should actually form and shape not just what we do, but who we are. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.